when Damien first asked me to come and, uh, and speak to you, I was like, this is an honor, really, because I've actually met a lot of you um, already in some of the classes around journalism that yesterday and today. And I honestly think you guys are amazing sort of young people and young being the operative word um, because Damien then told me exactly how young this crowd was going to be. And I have to say that when I first heard that, I, I kind of had that, that picture in mind. Um, I thought, oh my God, they're just so young. Um, and then they, and then he told me that he got me the big theater and that there would be a lot of you. And then I thought, oh, that's even better. That's so cute. But then I got really depressed because I had to think back about how far I was going to go in telling you how I got to the stage of my career where I am now. And I realized that I was going as far back as when you guys were born. And then I started to feel a bit like that. Um, so I'm not quite over that stage yet, but I also thought, you know what? It's like The Matrix, and please tell me that you're not too young to know The Matrix, or call it an old movie like my nephew. Um, it was 1999, and that, again, makes me feel like that. But there's that bit where Neo goes to um, Morpheus and he says, I know Kung Fu, and I know tech, and that's not the case just yet, that you can just plug in and learn the skill. So I'm consoling myself with, like, with experience, I might have just learned a few moves. Um, and that's what I wanted to hopefully impart on you today, just a few words of wisdom. Um, so not to set myself up for, um, for failure there, but uh, yes, we'll see how that goes. Um, so um, the way I structured this talk today is that I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. As I said, uh, we're going to take a journey back in time to a time you don't remember. Um, and then I'm going to talk about tech trends and how the idea for setting up the platform came around and what I have done to grow it and also a little bit about the lessons I learned along the way. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the future because in my area technology, I'm always looking at disruption and I think talking to you today, I want you to hopefully walk away with a sense that yes, disruption is there, but actually that might be a good thing and an opportunity for you as well. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So um, as the introduction says, the elevator pitch for Tech Trends is that it's essentially a news and opinion website, and I cover the entire spectrum of the digital technology interest, uh, industry, basically anything I'm interested in as far as tech goes. Um, but Tech Trends is also a strategic consultancy which means that I leverage some of the contacts and expertise that we have to advise clients on their communication strategy. 
And as Troy said, I also freelance for a whole bunch of external publications, and that content is also cross-posted to Tech Trends. So these are just three of my ongoing job titles. I'm an editor, I'm a journalist, I'm a consultant. I'm this kind of hybrid communicator, beast, blob type of uh, entity. And that's what I kind of wanted to talk to you guys about today a little bit, because when I was told at what stage of your courses you're at and how young you are, um, I know that you're looking at some choices at the moment and over the next few years, you're going to be uh, thinking about what major you're going to choose, what um, internships you might apply for, and even like what kind of jobs do you actually see yourself doing in future. And I think if you can take away one thing from this, it's probably that those choices are important, but they're not as black and white or final as you might think they are. So I want to show you that this kind of template of a hybrid evolving model, that something that changes according to what project you're involved with at the moment, project-based working, is probably going to be the template for your careers much more than what your parents had in mind when they first started saving for your college funds. So that's, that's part of the of what I want to talk about today. So, as I said, we're going to go back in time to 2001. And I wasn't joking when I said that I, I think that's some of the date of births um, in this room. And uh, I went to, I left my parents' house, I lived in Brazil, and I moved to London by myself to study media communication and cultural studies at the University of Greenwich. And yeah, that's what my campus looked like, so pretty cool. Um, so I worked my way through college, had many adventures, and I don't have time to tell you anything about that because I have a lot of years to get through. Um, but if any of you are old enough to buy me one of your fine craft beers um, you know, that you have here in the Pacific Northwest, then I'm happy to tell you about my other adventures some other time. But we'll fast forward now to around 2006, and that, you see, I was younger once, and um, at the time I was getting ready to graduate from university, I had developed an interest in game studies. And my tutor at the time was impressed enough with my dissertation on Resident Evil that he encouraged me to apply for a research assistant job. So... Out of university, I started um, researching game cultures. So game cultures, things like um, how people will mod video games, how they'll produce fan fiction, how they'll cosplay, that sort of thing. Um, really interesting. And I thought those stories were interesting not only in their own right, uh, like as, as academic subjects, but as stories that somebody off the street might want to learn about. So that's when I started to freelance for video, video game publications. I would just pitch um, those stories that I found interesting 
to editors and um, I might make it sound easier than it was, but I eventually built up quite a nice um, you know, array of publications I was contributing to. Um, different landscape, this is 2008, so most of those were actually ink on paper type uh, <laughs> contributions as well compared to online uh, these days. Um, but I was really happy. I was getting paid for my articles, which was a big deal. But it wasn't something that I think was long-term viable as a career, just because to produce a feature once you research, you interview, you edit, um, it was, you know, you're working for below minimum wage most of the time for what you're getting. But that's the other thing I wanted to tell you guys about, you know, ROI, return on your time investment, is not always just about the money, because what doing those articles allowed me to do, apart from learn a lot, was also, um, they got me a scholarship, um, because my next step was I went to do a course in creative and media enterprises at the University of Warwick, and that was a really prestigious university. They're part of the Russell Group, which is the same group of universities as Oxford and Cambridge in the UK. So it was a big deal to get in, an even bigger deal to get a scholarship. And everyone else had good academic qualifications. But what set me apart was this was an MBA-style course, and they really emphasized that they wanted people with experience in the creative industries. So me being a published author in commercial magazines really was what clinched that deal. Um, but at that stage, I was still thinking I would go on to do a PhD and probably work at a university. Um, that was kind of my general career plan. And what happened once I started that course was I actually changed my mind because I was thrown into this amazing melting pot of people and they were from all over the world and from every creative industry. So a lot of other people had experience as well. And I started to realize that the skill set that I had built up, like things that, that I learned, like researching an article, um, spotting a story, interviewing, uh, pitching editors, and tailoring um, my writing to different audiences, all of those things were skills that were in demand in all sorts of other roles. So I was chatting to people that were working at uh, places like Google in PR and marketing, and I thought, you know what, that, that sounds really good and I could do that. But I also, I hadn't considered a career in the technology industry before because I thought, well, I'm not a technical person, I'm not a coder. And that kind of opened my mind to, um, to new possibilities. So as I was getting ready to, to graduate, I was a lot more open-minded. And that was the stage when I stopped thinking about my career in terms of job titles. And if I can, I would also like you to consider maybe doing the same. Because what I found useful is... I started thinking of my career in terms of uh, Lego bricks. And I'm a huge Lego geek, not as huge as my husband, but um, honestly, um, you will forgive the Lego references. Um, 
I think of skills as the different sort of color shapes and sizes of those bricks because they're modular. They go together in different ways and the only limit to how you can combine them is your own creativity. So you can be with the right skills and the right kind of flexible approach, you can be ready for different projects um, at the drop of a hat, basically. So I've focused on you know, building skills. I mean, writing is a skill. Uh, video production is a skill. I mean, they don't always go together, but sometimes they do. It really will depend on the project there. So um, I'm also a big Star Wars geek. Um, so that's why I chose that example of how you can, uh, you can go about that. So I was getting ready to graduate, and I was considering my career options. I had developed an interest in maybe working in tech, but this is the place I was living in. It's a lovely town. If you ever visit England, do go. It's called Bath, northeast Somerset, dates back from Roman times, lovely architecture, and people tend to prance around dressed as Jane Austen characters uh, once a year. Uh, seriously. Um, Jane Austen lived there for a while, and if you like her novels, you will find many references to Bath in there. But Probably not what you think about if I say tech hub um, in there, which is why when I was uh, reading the Technology Guardian one day, I, that article really jumped up at me. It talked about an interesting startup funded by my favorite musician, Peter Gabriel, who lives just outside Bath in Box, all real names. Um, and. Um, it talked about the startup that was based literally around the corner from where I was living. So of course I take that as a sign and I do some investigative work and um, by investigative work I, I basically stalked them and um, eventually got to speak to the CEO and I said, you know, basically I would like to help out with PR and marketing work, I think I have these skills. I had, um, you know, my MA and all of that. So he was doing most of that work himself. So he was amenable to the idea of getting help on a contract basis. So that was my bridge from using those skills that I thought were transferable to eventually I moved back to London to actually take advantage of the much larger technology ecosystem there. And over the next few years, I worked in a really broad variety of startups. That's several beers worth of stories right there, I tell you, um, especially the dating website. But yeah, that's, those are some very good stories. But um, so you can see I had a broad range of experience across publishing, telecoms, ed tech, research. Um, so, was really building up to the point where I had increased my earning potential, I had solid experience, I was happy and had varied work, loved my colleagues, so that was all good. But at the same time, I also thought I wanted more of a creative outlet. Um, as interesting as any one company is, um, there's always, for me at least, more stories that I'd like to tell and just look into as far as technology goes. 
So that's when I started to build those bylines. Um, a lot of them unpaid, as I said, mostly as a creative uh, outlet as well. But that's, I had been around entrepreneurs a lot, and I really thought, you know, is there a way that I can just combine all of these monetizable skills and my passion for writing and reporting and everything else and actually make it pay? And would it be better if I did that under my own brand as opposed to trying to work for someone else? So I suppose I had that entrepreneurial kind of itch and I wanted to try it. And that's when um, the idea for Tech Trends came about. An aggregator platform where I could develop my own personal brand, but then expand it as well. Like we have now, we have other contributors to the platform. I don't write all of the articles um, myself and all. So that was 2016, three years ago now. We just had our third birthday. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, the short version of how it came around. Um, but of course, it's a lot scarier than it sounds. Um, anytime you go solo and, you know, try and set up something for yourself, then how do you know you made the right decision? And for me, that was kind of my eureka moment, or at least the first time when I felt, you know what, this is actually something that, um, that is interesting enough, that, uh, that is worth doing. And um, it's a funny story, because I was in a hotel where Alfred Hitchcock had filmed Vertigo in San Francisco, so that's the famous Force Perspective stairs uh, there. And there's lots of orange on the decor, as you can see. And I was talking to the chief technical officer of a company called Naughty America, which, um, as I'm sure many of the more innocent among you won't be familiar with them, um, how shall I put this? Um, they're one of the premier adult entertainment providers of this fine country. And um, we were discussing how and why this company had decided to start producing virtual reality pornographic content. Um, it was a fascinating discussion. We talked about the, the market, about how... Um, the adult industry had been pivotal for the adoption of many technologies from VHS to the internet, really, and how they expected it to develop and how it was different from normal pornography. But of course, there's no substitute for actually trying it out. And I then proceeded to do a demo of the content um, from a male point of view, which was, again, very educational. And, uh, and whatever your thoughts and feelings are on pornography, and that is, again, a whole other series of lectures we could have, but I do think that you agree that it wasn't your average day at the office. So for me, I like that. I like not knowing what the next day might bring, and um, hopefully I can also pay the bills in the process. But the reason I'm telling you this is not just because I enjoy telling the story and because it turned out to be, as the, 
as Troy mentioned, my Playboy article, which is still one of the favorite articles that I wrote. Um, and yes, people do read Playboy for the articles these days. Um, that is a fact. Um, I think if you want your naughties, you actually go elsewhere. Um, so that was also the moment when a lot of the lessons that I applied to growing my own personal brand and the Tech Trends platform, they either emerged or they were confirmed during that first, um, that first trip, really. So I'll share three of them very briefly with you. Um, the thing is, when I was doing that article, or when I set out to do that article, I was a very new freelancer, really. I didn't have that many bylines to my name yet. And Tech Trends was brand new, so I didn't have any impressive stats to throw at people to, you know, to convince them to get on board or anything um, and pay for this to happen. Um, so many of you might already have tried this, like pitching articles to editors, um, but if you haven't, you will find this out. Editors are incredibly risk-adverse creatures. So they have limited time, they answer to their own people, and all things being equal, they'll always go with people they know and they have relationships with, which is why it's so important to build a relationship with an editor if you're a freelancer. So that means that your pitch not only has to be more interesting and better than everyone else's, but you also have to 100% project that you will deliver on whatever it is that you're promising that editor. Whether or not you have all your ducks in a row at that point, it's, it's questionable, but your impression to your editor cannot be otherwise. So that's kind of what I mean by fake it till you make it, and there's a scientific term for that. It's called game theory. And the best way I ever found of explaining game theory is unfortunately an archaic and rather sexist joke, and I will apologize for telling it anyway. So the joke goes, the father says to the son, I want you to marry a girl of my choosing. The son, of course, refuses until he's actually told this girl is Bill Gates' daughter. Well, in that case, says the son, he agrees. The father then goes to Bill Gates and says, I'd like your, my son to marry your daughter, as you do. And uh, Bill Gates, of course, refuses, but only until he finds out that this young man is actually the CEO of the World Bank. Well, in that case, Bill Gates agrees. And the father then goes to the World Bank president, and you're guessing this, obviously. He says, make my son the CEO. He's refused, but of course, this is the son-in-law of Bill Gates we're talking about. So in the end, the father gets what he wants as well. So it's a little metaphor for the way politics works, the way the world of business kind of goes around. But I would say that anybody who trades on image and perception has to incorporate a little bit of game theory into how they operate. So what I'd like you to take away from that is just 
act like where you want to be in your careers. If you want to be a journalist, if you want to be PR, advertise, whatever, visualize where it is that you want to be and project that. Because the, the thing with tech trends as well was the same. We spent ages agonizing about the look of the website, how fast it loaded and all that. Because if we created a website that looked like it was small and new and didn't have any content on it, then it would take a lot longer to grow. So success or the image of it also brings success. So that was lesson number one. Lesson number two is that your resources and your time are limited and they are something that you need to treat as an investment all the time. Now, in this case, I had my Playboy byline and they were going to pay me what is in the market a very, a very good fee. But bear in mind, I was living in the United Kingdom and this involved a trip to San Francisco. So it wouldn't begin to cover my expenses, never mind my time that I was going to spend um, writing this article and doing all the work. So it was okay, it was worth it, definitely for advancing my career, but um, at the same time, I engaged in my favorite tactic, which is called killing multiple birds with one stone. And that just means that I was going to put this time and money into this trip, so can I maximize the return on my investment given the activities that I was already doing? And I could. In this case, I went to um, Linden Lab, which is, they're the makers of Second Life, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, the original kind of virtual world, and they're still going after 15 years. So they were about to launch their um, platform, which is called Sansar, and is a social VR platform. And so they were happy to talk about the adult industry angle, but at the same time, they gave me some really interesting case studies about how VR and immersive technologies can be used in education and training, and that was what I wrote for the Times Higher Education. A variation of that I wrote for EdTech Digest. Um, I also interviewed a San Francisco startup while I was there that did uh, VR content for schools. And then I had a tour and interview with Professor Jeremy Balenson at Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And I learned about the projects they were doing. And one of them got me a byline in Newsweek as well. So at the end of that trip, instead of one fee, one byline, I had several ones. And most importantly, they were in different areas and applications of that technology. So each one, I can tell you with no uncertainty, really has opened up the doors to how my reporting and my career developed afterwards. So for you guys at the start of your career, I would say take from that that any time you investing your time into something, just think, is there something else I can get out of this? What is the maximum return of my investment? Does this serve more than one purpose? And that kind of proactive thinking becomes second nature. I'm always kind of making connections 
and filing things for future reference. And it's, it's exhausting at first, but um, I would recommend that if you, if you want to maximize your time, that is the way to go. So lesson number three is that I think we can all be a bit more Madonna about how we manage our careers and not be afraid to mix things up a little bit and change according to the circumstances. Um, Thomas Edison apparently invented the tech gospel of fail fast. Um, basically, he says, you know, a negative result is also a positive outcome because you're learning what doesn't work. And that's true. Example of that, that was what I called the site when it came out at first. I called it EdTech Trends. Now, why did I do that? Because for the previous years, just before 2016, most of my experience and my most high-profile kind of uh, work had really been in the education technology sector. And it was a booming sector, so I thought there was an opportunity there to build a niche for myself, and I thought the site would be mostly about education. But then I wrote some articles around VR in education, and I got pitched this um, article, this, uh, this story about the adult angle, and I thought, why limit myself? What purpose does boxing myself and the site into that niche actually does? I can still tackle all of the same issues. I can still have an expertise in education, and I've written a lot about education, especially in the immersive space since. So it hasn't hurt that at all, but rebranding it certainly was um, serving a purpose there. So that's what we did shortly afterwards. And uh, now we have about nearly 700 articles published on the website over these past three years. And I can honestly tell you that if I had stuck to my original game plan, most of them just wouldn't have come around and many of my favorite ones. So that's what I mean about don't, don't just stick to a plan for the sake of sticking to it. See what, see what works and take a, a leaf from the tech industry approach, which is you launch early, you gather some feedback, and then you iterate based on what works and what doesn't. Um, likewise, when we were monetizing the site, I didn't want to use um, advertising, and we still don't. Um, but I was really nervous about introducing certain types of content, like um, maybe advertorials or guest posts or um, even product reviews. And actually, some of that content turned out to be the most popular content on the, on the whole site. So it shows that you can't assume that you just know what your, your audience is going to want. And as I said, this, um, the initial kind of foray into virtual reality stuck, um, and immersive technologies have remained a really big interest for me. And I have been able to cover so many different aspects and industries based on my interest in immersive tech. Now, that brings us to 
the kind of future disruption bit of, of the talk. And the reason why I was able to do that is because immersive technologies are not about one gadget or one thing. Immersive technologies are actually a fundamental shift from our consumption of content to experiencing of content. And that is pretty big deal. When I interviewed the inventor of the Microsoft HoloLens, Alex Kipman, he put it better than I did, and he said that immersive is the next evolution in personal computing. Now, I actually agree with him, because once whatever form it takes, once it becomes pervasive, like our phones are now, what you will see is, um, is a change between like in the way that people and information interact with one another, and that comes back to that core. So if you think about it, change in the way that people and information interact, then you can see that anybody who is wanting to go in the communications field really should be looking at adding that kind of golden Lego brick of immersive tech somehow to their skill set. And yes, that is a solid gold Lego brick if anyone ever wants to give me the world's most awesome present. Look at it, it's so beautiful. Um, so, <laughs> once you get that brick, though, what you actually build with it is very much an open question because Immersive is still a very nascent technology, and you will, you will still have to write all of the rules for it. And that is why I'm actually genuinely excited to talk to you guys, because you know, in some of our discussions, I, I really think that you will be the generation of professionals that will start to really figure out what those rules are for immersive storytelling might be. And when I say storytelling, that goes across anything that you might do. So whether you choose to go into advertising or PR or journalism or any of the hybrids of communication, and that's everywhere. Your job opportunities will be at every company. Um, I was saying just like content, it comes back to content and the content will increasingly be immersive. So, I'm going to give you three food for thought examples of people who are doing some really interesting work in the immersive storytelling space. And I will, you know, I'll let you do some homework around that, really. Um, but the first one is from Noni de la Pena. She's called, she's affectionately known as the godmother of VR, early pioneer, a journalist by trade. And back in 2006, so talking light years ago where it comes to tech, she did an experience called Hunger in LA. This combined documentary audio evidence and reconstructed photographs which they animated. This was a budget of a whole $700 and she had one high school intern helping her. So it couldn't have been more of a labor of love but she took it to Sundance, and with their duct tape goggles, 
they had people experiencing this man collapse in front of them from diabetic shock. This actually happened. They used the audio and reconstructed it as an experience. And they had people in tears experiencing that. So that was the proof of concept that got Noni thinking, this is a powerful medium where I can tell really difficult stories in an entirely different way and reach people in an entirely different way. So since then, um, her studio, which is called Emblematic, um, has done a lot of similar work with difficult subjects, abortion, domestic violence, police brutality, climate change. So if you're not already familiar with the work of Noni, I would recommend that you do look it up. <laughs> the other example is from the article I mentioned in Newsweek, and that's the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford. This experience called the Crystal Reef, where you stand in this reef and you're looking at the effects of ocean acidification. And literally you're watching your actions as humanity kind of kill this beautiful ecosystem around you. And it creates this empathetic bond between the actual environment and the person experiencing it, which I think in an age where we're still seeing climate change, skepticism, um, resistance against science-based research, mistrust of reporting in the media in general, if you can have a medium that actually cuts through all of that and delivers important facts and messages in a way that resonates and engages people, well, I think that it's, it's something that we have to look at, at the very least. Um, so that's another very interesting proof of concept there. And finally, uh, the work of Chris Milk. I recommend you look up his TED Talk, which is called How VR is an Empathy Machine. Quite a few years old now, but still relevant. It goes into uh, this concept of, of empathy and VR in more depth. And he did some work with the UN. Um, and this experience called Clouds of Isidra puts you in the shoes of this 12-year-old Syrian girl as she's going through her daily life in a refugee camp. So again, it just brings the realities of the conflict home in a way that a news-fatigued kind of audience really wouldn't engage with in the same way. So it goes around your defenses, and, and whether that's you know, to some degree uh, up to the novelty of the medium or not. Again, that's open questions. We're, we're very much exploring that. But, um, but I do think that those examples do show that there is a potential for creating much more emotional engagement with this. And that is why there is so much interest around um, immersive technologies and storytelling as well. So I'll close with my favorite quote from the much missed screenwriter, William Goldman. And he said this about the entertainment industry. So I agree, it's like this day and age, certainly nobody knows anything, probably least of all me. But what, um, what I do believe is that we're going to continue to see disruption. I mean, the world is frankly messed up. 
there's disruption, there's political, social, economic, environmental, and technological disruption. We're going to continue to see all of that. So as you kind of prepare yourselves for a life of work that nobody really knows what it's going to look like, that's why I say the best way to future-proof your careers is actually to build skills, build modular skills, and be flexible and entrepreneurial and proactive about the way that you deploy them. That, that is the strategy that I adopted in a nutshell, and it's kind of working for me at the moment, um, and is what I would advise somebody to do. I think it's your best bet. Um, and the silver lining here is that disruptive times often bring with them the best kind of stories. Um, so I, for one, want to be one of the people telling those stories. Um, and if, you, if I can inspire you guys to try and do the same, then, um, then I would have counted myself lucky today. So with that, I'll thank you very much. And I will also take any questions that you might have. Thank you.